0: So, kind of a sobering time, and this is a hard-hitting series, I think, because we can anticipate that these words are going to cut right to the heart. Let me read them, verses 14 through 19 this morning. James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Strong words and hopefully a strong sermon to follow. This is sort of the litmus test in terms of where you are before the Lord even as you sit here this morning. It's a passage that's a call to examine yourself, to see if you're in the faith, to take your spiritual pulse, And these words actually made me think about death and specifically funerals this week. I was thinking about how powerful it is to go to a funeral. Some funerals are more powerful and more significant to us than others. As a pastor, I've been to a lot of different funerals. And the first funeral I went to, or not the first funeral I went to, but the first funeral I preached for was a funeral in the South where I was an associate pastor and a family said, hey, I need you to come and preach this funeral. I know you don't know the person that died, but he's kind of a a friend of the family's and will you just come and show up? And so I got directions to this place and it was a funeral home on the side of the road down a country road in Arkansas. And so there I am showing up and have my sermon and I'm ready to go and I'm preaching away and The casket's kind of laid out right in front of me in this little country um, setting. People are fanning themselves because it's real hot outside. And after I was done preaching the gospel, I just kind of sat down not knowing what was going to happen next. And this funeral director kind of ambled up and and went behind the silk screen behind me. And all of a sudden I just heard this, this click And it was, you know, a tape that was being played. A tape or those plastic things that stick in the, you know, the little deal and the reels go and music comes out. And it was I'll Fly Away, but it was in this sort of whiny southern, you know, static behind it type, type sound. And it was this, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. And I thought, wow. I am having the most existential southern moment of my entire life right now as the sweat's pouring down my face in this little church. So that was kind of a scarring moment for me. But but funerals in general are sobering things, and they are memory-making events because many of us have lost loved ones, and whether it's a grandfather or a child who's died or someone that you see that that's lying there in the casket as you pay your last respects and sort of... Um, pray for the people that are grieving, or you yourself is grieving. Um, they're memorable events. And one thing that I have noticed as I've gone to funerals over the years is that when I come up to the body, I see the corpse, but the person isn't there anymore. Do you ever have that effect? Do you ever have that thing strike your mind where you look in the coffin and you loved the person? But the shell of the person is there and it represents the person that you loved, but that person's gone and hopefully in heaven with the Lord. You know, sort of with reverse emotion, I have sometimes encountered people that I thought were spiritually alive only to find them as spiritually dead, a walking corpse in front of me. I remember I was 17 when I became a Christian. I was raised in a Christian home, and I grew up with a young man where we would, you know, play at each other's houses every day after school, first through seventh grade. We were really tight. We had the last names that begin with C, so we sat next to each other and caused all kinds of problems. The teachers never caught on to separate us, and uh, we were good friends and dear friends. And then I moved across town. He stayed where he was in his school system, and then I became a Christian. At seventeen, and his family came over to our church, and so I sort of made a friendship with this guy again, and so we began to spend some time together. But I was slowly recognizing that we weren't the same person as we were before. We didn't have the same relationship. We had two different natures, and. I saw him start to hang out with my Christian friends and play basketball with my Christian friends and hang with me some. And I thought, you know, he's changing. He's, he's going to go down the same narrow path that I'm going down and he's going to love Jesus. And so I remember talking to him on the phone and trying to encourage him and saying, you know, I love the Lord. And I sort of was testing the waters in terms of his own affections for Christ and talking about Bible study and things. And suddenly... But halfway through the conversation, I realized that he wasn't with me. He wasn't going where I was going. It was like we were having a phone call funeral in that moment. It was like just a flat line, no pulse on the other line. And it was sad to me, and it was sobering. And I remember that being one of our last sort of conversations we had, especially about the Lord, because he just wasn't with me, and he sort of faded out of my life. There's a lot of people, I think, around us that we think are Christians that perhaps if you were to see inside their hearts, you'd find out that they're really not showing signs of life at all. I remember in that same church growing up, it was the fastest growing church in Virginia at the time, teeming with people, thousands of people there. And when I became a Christian, I don't want this to sound spiritually arrogant or as if I was looking down my spiritual nose at people, but as I became a Christian and began to talk to people about the Lord and become excited with them about the Lord, I found that a lot of people were sort of walking around my church and they were like spiritual zombies, kind of Night of the Living Dead, where they they just, they weren't alive. There were a lot of people that were alive spiritually there, but there were a lot of people there that were just coming and going, showing up and leaving, but they had no life. They, They didn't have What James calls works, or maybe a better word for that is actions. There wasn't spiritual action in their life. One of the most important transitions I ever made as a new believer was seeing church as not a place I show up to sort of a place where I'm paying my respects as I show up from week to week and kind of paying my dues. But I started to come to church to be a player, to be active, to be on mission, to to see people and connect with people and try to meet people's needs, to serve in the body of Christ, to show up and do something. And I wasn't Preaching, obviously at that stage of my Christian life, I was just showing up, but it was an exciting thing to sing next to somebody and to ask somebody how they're doing or or to to help somebody out. And it was like, man, I'm showing up and I, I can't keep away from this place because it's where I'm active spiritually. And it wasn't obviously just a place, it was being with the people of God. That's what it looks like to be spiritually alive and In James, in these verses, what James is doing is he's conducting somewhat of a spiritual funeral here over people that were in the early church and were not alive spiritually. He's doing that to shock people, to shake them awake, for them to examine themselves, to say, yeah, I need to see if I really have any action coming out of my faith. See if I'm alive. It was the early church. Jesus had... Risen from the dead, he was at the right hand of the Father ten years ago, and only ten years into this early stage of church development, James, the half-brother of Jesus, is having to sort of pull out the defibrillator pads. I think I got that right, right? You medical people, help me. But anyway, and he's sort of hitting the church to shock them. Okay? That's what these verses are about these Jewish Christians, these people from a Jewish heritage, had moved from being performance-based where they wanted to keep the law and sort of find favor before God by keeping the law, and they had transitioned in grace where they, they found that it's by grace alone that you're saved, but all of a sudden that grace gospel had swung the pendulum too far where they were passive about their Christian walk and Christian life. The diaspora where where the the diaspora where the church had sort of you know spread out all over asia minor was now hellenized and they were influenced by greek thinking greek culture where they were these sort of stoic christians where it was more spiritual just to show up and have no emotion and have no action within the church and that's not good at all a christian Faith is a faith that has action, that has fruit, something that's alive like a plant. When it's put in the sunlight and watered and nurtured, it will grow and it will spring life. It can't help itself, right? I mean, when something is alive, even underneath the concrete, it's, pre- it's coming through the cracks. The roots of a tree are, are teeming with life and they're taking over. You ever see in the the forest where you see a vine that's sort of working its way around trees and it's even suffocating trees because of the strength of life. When something is alive and has been sparked by the Spirit of God, it's going to manifest itself in a powerful way. And so James is picking up on this now and wanting to shake the church awake. Look at verse 14. He asks many questions in this text. And he begins with, one. what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He begins here with the idea that, look, this kind of faith, this dead faith cannot save. We're going to be looking at two headings here under these verses, dead faith and then demon faith. It's kind of an encouraging message for you this morning. Dead faith and demon faith. Okay, here we go. Dead faith, beginning in verses fourteen through seventeen, is where he's saying, "Look, what good is it, my brothers?" And he's pastorally talking to the church, calling them brothers. He's saying, "If someone says he has faith and uh, says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Is that kind of faith going to be the real thing that when you come to stand before the Lord, that you're going to be accepted in? Is that a living faith if it doesn't have any action to it?" Now, some of you might be thinking, listen, didn't Paul sort of go against a works gospel? Wasn't he saying, look, you're saved by grace through faith alone and that not of yourselves. You can't work lest you could claim, you know, in a boasting spirit that you earned your way to heaven. Isn't that Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? What about Romans 3, 28? For we hold that one is justified... By faith apart from the works of the law, Galatians 2.16, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will be accepted or received into heaven by works. And that's true. But this is what the Apostle Paul was doing in Romans and Galatians. He had a sword in his hand and he was facing this way. And then if you sort of look at James, he's got a sword in his hands and he's facing this way. Paul is fighting against a works-oriented gospel. He's talking about people at the beginning of their faith, where they believe and God accepts them and gives them eternal life based on faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I mean, it's only by grace ...through faith that you're saved. And that is the gospel of Romans. That is the gospel of Galatians. Absolutely true. And Paul is fighting against works-oriented salvation. You can't work your way into the kingdom of God. James is dealing with a different battle. He's facing a different crowd. He's talking to a crowd of people who have a relationship with Christ... ...or who think they have a relationship with Christ in the church... He's talking to people who are professing Christ, but they've got no fruit in their lives. Remember John the Baptist, when he was talking to the Pharisees that came up to him, they wanted to be baptized, give us the baptism of repentance. And Luke looked at, I mean, John the Baptist looked at those people and said, look, you're a brood of vipers, you're a pit of snakes, because really you're just externally showing yourself off to be religious and spiritual, but really inside of you is empty. You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember that? In other words, James is just picking up on that idea saying, look, you need to let your light shine before men that... They would see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Those are Jesus' words. And James is sort of picking up on that theme, saying, look, you need to let your light shine. You need to have a faith that has light, that has action, that has life, that is doing things, that's active, right? Isn't that a better way to think about church and life and Christianity? It really is. To be a doer of the word of God. You remember those sermons from James 1? To be a doer of the word of God, not just a hearer only. That's what James is picking up on again. Dead faith does something. Dead faith holds out hope to people. But it's a hope that's not real. It's a false hope. Look at verse 14 again, the end of it. Can that faith save him? The word save there is talking about the totality of salvation, speaking comprehensively, not just when you're saved and you're brought into the kingdom of God. He's talking to people in terms of they think that they're Christians, they're professing Christ, and they've got nothing to show for it spiritually. And James is saying, look, if you think that you're going to have a safety net when you stand before the Lord... It's not going to hold up. You've duped yourself. You've faked yourself out, and you think that you're alive, and you're really not. Can that kind of faith save you? The safety net will not be there for those who think that they're saved, but they're really not. It's just insufficient the interesting part about this, to me, is that it not only holds out a false hope, but it sounds so spiritual. Dead faith can really sound, feel, taste. It can look very spiritual when it really isn't. Look at this parable that James brings up in verse 15. Sort of a story to to. to Give an extreme example in the church. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now, James is talking about brothers and sisters in the church. He's not a chauvinist, he's bringing up sisters in Christ, whether you're a Jew or Greek. Male or female, you're all one in Christ. And he's bringing up sisters and brothers here. And he's bringing an extreme example because poorly clothed here means to be virtually naked. So it's a person showing up not just in shabby, dirty clothes or rags, but a person who is really in need of clothing. And secondly, it's a person who's showing up who's hungry, and not just hungry because they can't always get a good meal. This is a person who's in desperate need of food for nourishment. I'd say, well, that's kind of an extreme example. That really doesn't often happen in our churches here in South Anchorage, and that's probably true. It can happen. People do walk in off the street from time to time, but it does happen in churches around the world. It happens Recently at Mountain View Baptist Church. I was talking to Dennis and Celeste Richardson, my wife and I were last weekend, and we were talking about their ministry in the inner city and how people come to hear the Word of God, thirty or forty people, they hear the Word of God. That preaching went on earlier this morning, and then they have a second service, which is where they feed the masses. They give a brunch, they give coffee, and people come in from off the streets and sort of fill the place out to where last week they had up to 100 people in their second hour service. But these people that are coming in, they're not general tithers. These are, these are the prostitutes. These are people who are coming in who are addicted to alcohol. These are people who have been abused physically. And I know that these same kinds of things happen over here, but These are people that are coming in off the streets to get a warm meal. And he said that this one man came into the church and the seat of his pants was just completely ripped out. And he had a coat on to cover that as he walked in, but he didn't have any other pair of pants to wear. And so what they did is they, they found out about that, and they began to say, hey, let's, let's find a place in the back room where we can get this man a pair of pants and, and give that to him. And they, they were talking amongst themselves, and they said, we don't have any pants in the back. And suddenly they went into the back room, and lo and behold, there was a pair of pants in the back. And, and then they found out the guy needed a pair of shoes. The shoes had worn out, and they really were no good to wear his feet. And so they said, yeah, but we wouldn't have his size, and we don't have his shoes. We have a pair of shoes here in the back, and where did those come from? I'm not sure. But all that to say, they were able to clothe this man and give him what he needed. This is what James is saying. He's saying, When that scenario happens, when that scenario happens in your church, if you just look at that person and turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to that person, that brother, that sister in Christ, how can you say? That you have life in your heart. How can you say that you're the real thing? It's worse. Look again at the verse. This is what this church was saying to someone that was in that desperate need. Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Not only are you sort of ignoring the person as they walk into the assembly. You're actually spiritually blessing them. You're you're giving them the shalom offering. You're saying, hey, shalom to you. Peace to you. And then these are sort of passive, reflexive verbs. Be warmed, be filled. That's basically saying to the person, listen, take care. Take care of yourself. Go get yourself something to eat. Be warmed. You know, don't eat our food, but just, just go find yourself some food. Get a job. Go get a job. I know that attitude doesn't ever seep in, does it? You see someone that's homeless or poor and you say, why doesn't that person work? What James is saying is that no matter what brought that person to that situation, if your heart doesn't turn with compassion when you see that person, there's something wrong. That's what he's doing. He's saying there's something wrong. You've sold out your heart to believe that you're right with God when you're really not right with God. It, it can sound so spiritual, Well, it's really not. 1 Timothy 4 is where Paul indicts false teachers and says they have consciences that have been seared. 1 John 3.17 says that people, when they close their heart to the needy, to the hungry, how can the love of God abide in them? Turn over to Luke chapter 10. I want to talk about the Good Samaritan for a few minutes. This morning I was meditating on Luke 10 and Certain things popped out at me. It was a lawyer who went to Jesus and he was saying, look, how can I be right with God? How can I have eternal life? How can I gain this inheritance? Verse 25, verse 26, Jesus asks a real insightful question. He says, how do you read the law? Jesus is always trying to pull out what's on the inside and reveal it to the person who's inquiring about eternal life. And he says, how do you read the law? You know, think about that. Very important. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, the famous Shema passage, and quotes it spot on, word perfectly here. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So he says, how do you read the law? And then he says, look, you need to be a doer of the law do this. And he's testing him, saying, look, you know, I want to see if you're the real thing. Are you a doer? Well, verse 29 reveals the lawyer's heart because the lawyer's heart wants to justify himself. He wants to earn his way into heaven. It says, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In other words, hey, where can I, where can I meet this person's need? Who is it? Who is it? And Jesus wants to continue to reveal this man's heart to himself. And in verse 30, he says, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves, or robbers, who stripped him. Same idea. This is a man who stripped naked, the same words used in James 2, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. This is a man who needs help. It's, it's an extreme example. It would be frightening to just walk by somebody who's bleeding half dead and naked on the street, Right? Well, who walks by? First of all, a priest, <laughs> the religious man. He, he's walking down the side of the road, and look at this. This is a repeated phrase. The priest saw him and passed by on the other side. Oh, I'm going down this side of the road. You know, I'm going to move over here. We're shocked, right? We would never do something like that. We would never move over in our car into another lane when somebody has a need on the side of the road, right? We'd never do that. Well, that's what this is a picture of. A person who's beaten, bloody, bludgeoned. And the priest, the most likely person to help out, goes over on the other side. And then you've got the Levite, another spiritual person. He saw him and passed on the other side. Verse 33, and then you have the Samaritan. Probably pointing out that there should have been a racial barrier. There should have been a problem here where the Samaritan could have said, Well, I would help that person, but that would not be clean for me to do. Right, we'd never say something about someone, well, I can't minister to that person. That person might have disease. That person might harm me, right? And so I can't risk it. Well, the Samaritan, what does he do? He basically adopts this guy. He adopts him. He's journeying by, journeying by and he saw him, and here's his heart. He had compassion on that person. He binds his wounds up. He pours oil and wine on him. And, and look, it says, then he sat Him on his own animal, so he gives him his own seat in his car. You know, he's saying, "Look, share what I have. Take my own animal." And puts him up in the inn and gives him money and covers the expenses—not even just for that day, but for days to come. Verse thirty-six. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer says, "The one who showed him mercy." Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Where does mercy come from? The Holy Spirit. Transformed heart. It's where it comes from. It's what changes everything. It flips everything on its head when we have real faith. Not dead faith, but a faith that's alive. You might say, look, I don't know if I'm up for those kinds of Overtures, those kinds of risky behaviors and putting myself out there. Well, you know what? A heart that has a little bit of a pulse will at least want to do that, right? You at least have a little bit of compassion in you in those situations. Even if you don't always act, even if you don't always complete what God would have you do, you have a heart to do it. You want to do it. You're trying to grow. You're trying to get there. I mean, I admit, there are times where it might be better to call the cops or call an ambulance, but at least you have a heart towards people. Someone who is self-consumed doesn't even see those things. They just move right on. But Christ has made you others-focused because you're transformed, unless you're dead spiritually and need to be shaken awake. This isn't bad news, even though, you know, it's hard hitting. This could be the best news that you ever heard to find out that you're not yet alive. You might be sitting there thinking, man, I don't, church has never made sense to me. It's never made sense for me to give, for me to sacrifice, for me to do for others. I see people, they're, they're, they're taking extra time in their evenings and serving and jumping on board and they're giving and they're being a part of something and I don't get it. It might just be that God has not opened your heart up yet or maybe he's opening it up even this morning. On the other hand, you might be sitting here and thinking, man, I do have compassion, but I need to put feet to it. And that could be what James um, is doing for the church then, and the Holy Spirit could be doing in your heart this morning. You can sound really spiritual and still be dead. Number two, let's look at what demon faith looks like. Well, before we get there, let me not miss one more verse. James 2, verse 17 so faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What does spiritual death look like? Let me just mention one other thing. First Timothy 5 talks about different kinds of people within the church. And one kind of person Paul is talking about and addressing were widows and young widows, people who all of a sudden had needs in their lives. And they were saying, listen, I need support from the church. And in First Timothy 5, 8, he says, listen... Families, you need to take care of your daughter if all of a sudden she becomes a widow. And that's the first line of care and benevolence is through the family. And if you don't do that, you're worse than an unbeliever. But this is a lady who's in the church, and perhaps that question is answered, and she's saying, look, put me on the list. I'm a widow. I need help. And Paul gives some parameters of of age and godliness before you're put on the list. And he says in 1 Timothy 5.6 that someone who's trying to work the system like that and drain the church is self-indulgent and is dead even while she lives. Talk about a terrible indictment. That's hard to hear. But it could be the best news for someone to hear, right? To say, wow, that's what I'm doing and I don't need to be that person. 1 Timothy 5.15 says that some had gone after Satan straying away from the truth. Okay, that's dead faith. Now let's look at demon faith in James 2 beginning in verse 18. Verses 18 and 19 all come under the example of even the demons believe and shudder. That's the example that James gives for these demon faith people. But, verse 18, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Demon faith can give a good spiritual argument. There's a lot of people who are good Bible students who basically are as spiritual as a demon. Strong words. Again, James wants the church to wake up and say, are you comparing me to a demon? This person gives a very good argument, basically gives an aphorism or a statement that was repeated over and over again. You know, look, I I have faith and you have works. I have faith. I'll I'll be the prayer. I'll be the person who just kind of sits back and you go and you be the doer. And James is going, look, you can't split things up like that, all neat and tidy. You have faith and I have works. No, that doesn't work. It says, show me your faith apart from your works. And I'll show you faith by my works. Actually, my works are what explain the fact that I'm the real thing. It's not one or the other. I'm not saying that, you know, for some of us, we can't have an effective prayer ministry, where primarily what we're doing is praying. But we can't use that as an excuse not to get out on the battlefield, right? Martin Luther had said that, when he became a Christian as an Augustinian monk, he had sort of a, a roommate. And a roommate and him were talking about how Luther was going to launch out on the mission field, begin to preach and get out after it and get, get after people. And the, his friend was going to stay back in the monastery and just pray for him. One night this friend had a dream and he saw a man in a field and he was trying to reap the harvest and pull it all together and he was just unable to do it because there was so much to harvest and it was overwhelming for him. And suddenly in the dream the man looked back and it was the face of Martin Luther looking back at him. Well, he interpreted the dream to say, listen, I need to get out of my cell and go out into the field with him and get on the battlefield. And that's exactly what he did. We need to shake awake. We need to be willing to come out of the funeral zone and get out into the living amongst people. And if we see people that are spiritual zombies that thought that they were Christians, we need to be bold enough to say, have you ever thought about what it looks like to live the Christian life? I mean, that's a great way to enter into a discussion. Have you ever thought about Bible study? Would you like to come? My brother, when he was witnessing to me and Really, the only one that would call me on the carpet about my sin was saying, you know, Jeff, every time we get around my Christian friends, you don't seem comfortable. You just don't seem to be happy. And that concerns me because Christians like to be around other Christians, even if they're not just like each other. Never forgot that, but that was a good way for him to shock me. For me to think about where I was and where I wasn't before God. You can make a good argument and spiritualize where you think you are when you're really not anywhere at all. Well, what James is saying again, he says, I will show you my faith by my works. The language there is the preposition by is saying out of. And it's the idea that you have real faith because works are popping out of it. You can't hold it back, again, like a plant or like a tree. We're, we're sort of seeing our trees bud in spring. You can't stop it. It's going to happen. Things are going to become more and more green and beautiful because life is there. And where you have a bush that's dead in spring, you can't make it come to life. I've tried, right? You water it, you do whatever, and nothing's going to happen. You can talk to it. It's not going to come to life. Unless there's life in there. You're either dead or you're alive. Well, he goes in one step deeper in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Not only does demon faith make a good argument, demon faith also will affirm the word of God. You know, the demons know the Bible. They just haven't repented and won't because they're condemned in their rebellion. Satan is a demon. He knows God's word. Here in verse 19, James is he's saying that people who aren't alive spiritually are people who even quote Deuteronomy 6, the Shema passage. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. These Hebrew children that grew up and became Christians in the church, they grew up saying Deuteronomy 6, the Lord thy God is one God over and over and over again. They were affirming that Yahweh, the true God of Israel, is the one God. That's why Israel says it over and over again. We've got the true and living God. But what James is saying is you can have the true living God of the Bible committed to memory. You can know who you're talking about and still be totally dead in jeopardy of hell. That faith will not save you. Head knowledge does not save you. It has to be a transformed heart. Amen? That's the difference between being dead and being alive. He says, you do well. He's being sarcastic. You do well at that. You're good at reciting that over and over again. But guess what? Even demons believe and shudder. Even demons know truth you remember the demons are the third of the angels that were swept away in revelation 12 it talks about the red dragon that comes a symbol of satan and he swept away a third of the stars stars are often representing angels in the bible and a third of the demons were swept out of heaven and condemned to earth in that passage these are the demons of Second Peter 2, 4, where God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but, they cast, but he cast them to hell and committed them to chains in gloomy darkness. Demons are active in our culture. They're twisting scripture. They're whispering doubts in people's ears. They're behind the scenes. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities. They're distorting truth. They're drawing people away. They're involved in a realm that we really can't readily see. Yet they're active. And when Satan puffed himself up in pride, he led a rebellion, and this re- rebellion is alive and active, though condemned, enchained. in terms of God's plan. They are in chains, locked up for the lake of fire. That's going to happen for them. The lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his angels. But these people, these beings rather, they know the word of God and we don't want to be like them. We don't want to be people who are demon-like where we know the truth but we're not set free, right? Demons are those who every time Jesus showed up when he was walking around this earth and he was raising the dead and healing the sick, they were the ones that always, it says, whenever he showed up in Mark chapter 3, they would say, you are the son of God. They knew who Jesus was more than the people did. The people wondered about Jesus, whether he was a good teacher. The demons knew the timetable of Jesus Christ. They knew that he was here. They knew he was supposed to... Save people and redeem people. And they were saying, You are the Son of God. Do you remember when Jesus showed up to the area of the Gadarenes and the two demon-possessed men approached him as he got out of the boat, Matthew 8, 28 and 29? They were so strong and demonized that they were they were this force in the area where people could not pass through that area and get past them. They were like, you know, ogres that were that were sort of keeping people from being able to live their life in that area. Well, Jesus comes up to them, and what did they say, the demons say through these men? They said this, What have we to do with you, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before it is time? And the timing there is when the demons would be ultimately condemned into the lake of fire. They knew who Jesus was. They know who Jesus is. You ever wonder, why is it that they don't repent? Well, God chose when when they rebelled in heaven, he chose to, to condemn them forever at that point with no hope. You know what the difference is between a demon faith and you? You can still repent if you're under that cloud of demon faith. We still have hope. We do. Well, demon faith, it makes a good argument. It affirms God's word. And thirdly, it responds emotionally. You might say, well, look, I know I'm a Christian because I respond emotionally to the word of God. There's a lot of emotional people that are not yet converted people. It's true. Demons believe and shudder. That that word is they're shaking. They're shaking over what they know. You might say, well, look, I fear God. I shake and tremble before God. Yeah, but do you have a transformed heart that is active, that is bearing the fruit of the Spirit? It's not enough to be afraid of God. You have to be God's child to be in His kingdom. When He makes you His child, you're bearing fruit. And you not only tremble before God, but you tremble with gladness before God because you know you're safe and secure ...in his family. Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world, right? Perfect love casts out fear. We know that we're safe and we, we know we're not part of a demon faith... ...because we are a child of God and we have the fruit of righteousness. You know, I, speaking of demons, I remember when I was a high school kid again... Um, ...a new believer witnessing to a young man who was kind of short of stature... ...and yet very, very wild a wild guy. And he would do anything. And he was kind of scary in general. But one day I was sitting with him in a car at night, sort of after a youth event or something. I think I might have been going over his house just to witness to him and get to know him. And he began to talk to me about the power of Satan. Suddenly I'm thinking, man, how smart is this for me to be here doing this right now? And he began to talk about how he was part of a group that would worship the devil and sort of see things and, um, you know, by firelight and dance around that. And I just thought, wow, this is really, really strange. But the thing that struck me out of that conversation most of all was when he said that Satan is powerful. And you know what? He's right. God permits Satan to be powerful right now. But I knew that I had the gospel and I wasn't afraid because God is more powerful than the devil. Amen? He is. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I don't know where this young man is before the Lord right now, but he heard the gospel and if he hasn't repented, then he's still sort of using the power of Satan to get by, but is dead in his faith and has not yet recognized the true power which is ultimate power that comes from God himself. Demons believe and shudder. It reminds me of one last story, and that's found in Joshua 2. Turn over there in Joshua 2. I don't have time to go into this, but I was just sort of thinking this through about how people, they they believe truth and they shudder, but they shudder to their doom. And that's found in this story. Remember Joshua? He was the leader of... Of the people of God who are crossing into the promised land. And Joshua 2 is sort of the beginning of that, and they're exploring Jericho. And he sends a couple spies out to spy out the land. And the king of Jericho hears about this, and so he hears that the spies have come to Rahab the prostitute's house, and that they're sort of using that as a base of operations. So he wants to disrupt that and send the spies away. Imagine this. What's the evangelistic strategy? Okay, let's go to this village and stay at the prostitute's house. Okay, all right, that's first, right? I mean, that's how this thing is folding out, and these men of God are, are seeing that Rahab is a believer, and she's believing in God and, and exercising a faith that's alive, and so she actually hides them up into the stalks of the roof, and And these people come um, under the king's order to find these spies, and she sends them another way, and she lies about that. Don't know what to do about that. However, Hebrews 11 says that she had faith. It was a faith that was alive. She wasn't following the world's wisdom. She was saying, I'm going for God in Christ. But look at her description, how she describes in verse 9, the rest of Jericho and their situation. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. She's talking to the spies of Israel, the people who've shown up. She says, the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And she talks about Israel crossing the Red Sea and the land drying up and these miracles and how Israel had conquered these great kings coming into the land. Look at verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, what did they do? Did they respond in faith? No. Our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God. He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now Rahab's heart was stirred. Her heart melted with fear. But it turned into faith. Jericho's hearts were struck. The people of Jericho's hearts were were struck with fear and they melted inside and the spirit was gone from them and they were drained. And you know what? They ran from God and they ultimately were destroyed by God. Remember Judas Iscariot? He was one of the 70 who was performing miracles, casting out demons. He was with Christ. He heard the words of Christ and was condemned in his own conscience and condemned in his own pride and he ultimately hung himself. Peter performed miracles, was with Christ, followed Christ, pledged allegiance, pledged allegiance to Christ, denied Christ three times, but repented with tears of repentance that was granted him by God. He had a faith that was alive. Even though his pulse went really weak for a while, right? Right when Christ was dying, he was, he was really weak in his pulse. All of a sudden, he began to revive and became a key leader for the church because he had a faith that was active, that was alive, that worked. Well, how does this work in our lives? Number one, I was talking to somebody this week about this sermon, you know, dead faith, demon faith, you know, how to win friends and influence people, right, type sermon. But anyway, uh, and he just encouraged me, make sure that you give the gospel as hope as you talk about a faith that might be dead because there are a lot of you I know who struggle with sin every day of your life, besetting sins, sins that you wish would let go out of your life, sins that you haven't yet widened the circle of confession in, where you just feel locked up and trapped. You, you put it away and you, you say, I'm never going to do it again, and then all of a sudden you reach down in your pocket and you bring it back out and you never told anybody that you needed some help. And you might be sitting there thinking, you know, I might have a dead faith. Well, I want to tell you something. If you're dead or you're alive, what you need this morning is the gospel. Because the gospel saves you, and the gospel is our lifeline in sanctification as we grow progressively. If you ever detach yourself from the gospel, you all of a sudden will not be living the Christian life anymore at all. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Jesus died, was buried, he rose again on our behalf to make us free, to make us clean. We have the Holy Spirit of God in our lives because of the good news of the gospel. So genuine faith comes from one source. It's the gospel. Number two, Christians are always saved by grace through faith alone. This faith will always have signs of life. I mean, the old reformers used to say, look, we're saved by faith alone, but this faith is never an alone faith. The idea that we come in through the door into the kingdom of God as a Christian by faith alone, because I believe that I couldn't save myself. I believe that I'm not worthy and Jesus you are. But then once we're on the inside, we should expect that our faith is going to produce works. And we've talked about that a lot. Number three, do not underestimate the power of false faith. You might, you know, the old saying, it looks like a duck, it walks like a duck, it's a duck. You might You know, look like a Christian, walk like a Christian, sound like a Christian, and not be a Christian. (laughs) Don't underestimate the power of false faith or false faith producing false works because there are works that come out of even false faith, but not spiritual works, not the good works that God produces in us. All right, number four, ground yourself with gospel content, examine yourself By gospel fruit. What do I mean by that? I heard this phrase a long time ago and I never forgot it. God never sends anyone to hell who's trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Genuinely trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. So if you're struggling with the assurance of your salvation, go back to the gospel. Get to know it. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. This is the gospel. Get to know the gospel. And find assurance through the truth. And then examine your life and see, is there any pulse at all? My fruit might not be watermelon and cantaloupe size. It might be raisin size. But is there some fruit? And if you need help on that, we want to make ourselves available to you as pastors and counselors. I'll be down front this morning. I'd be happy to pray with you and counsel you through the assurance of your salvation even this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word and fellowship around your truth. And I pray, God, that you would.